in our hearts. Amen. Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 1, says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make his paths straight. Over the page to chapter 4, and starting at verse 12, it says, Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, that's John the Baptist, he departed into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast in the borders of Zabulon and Nephthalim, which, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, the spoken by Isaiah the prophet, sorry, saying, The land of Zabulon and the land of Nephthalim by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And one more passage in the 10th chapter of Matthew Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5, speaking about the disciples, it says, These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen. The nation of Israel understood what it was to be a kingdom, understood what a kingdom was. Uh, They were a kingdom after all. Admittedly, at this time in the Gospels, they were a kingdom that was under the heel of the Roman Empire, under the invasion and occupation of the Roman Empire, but they were still a kingdom nonetheless. And we read in Matthew 3 about a wild-looking prophet named John the Baptist, who came after the fashion of Elijah, how he walked out of the desert with a message, a message about another kingdom, a kingdom that was at hand or close by or coming soon, we might say. And when John the Baptist's short ministry ended abruptly with him losing his head, Jesus of Nazareth begins his ministry with the same message. You need to repent because there is a new kingdom that is coming soon. And then we read of how his disciples were also sent out with the same message. There is a kingdom that is at hand. There is a kingdom that is very close, that is approaching. And with the help of the Lord this morning, I want to preach to us that it is time to be in the kingdom. It is time to be in the kingdom. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for every soul that is here, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord, and that your spirit would stir in our hearts and move us, Lord, that you would open our eyes that we might see you, that we might see ourselves, Lord, in our need for you. And Lord, that your will would be done in this place, we pray in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Throughout history, writers of fiction captured the imagination of their readers with tales and stories 
and ideas that there are parallel universes, that there are alternate dimensions or kingdoms or realms where nobody has ever been. And uh, often these fictional stories involve the idea or the concept of some kind of a, a magical entry, an access point, or we might say a portal of some kind where you could get from this real world into that world that nobody knows about but apparently exists and nobody's found it yet. And to give you some examples from what we might consider classical literature, Lewis Carroll's very famous story, Alice in Wonderland, Alice found herself in Wonderland by following a white rabbit down a rabbit hole. And somehow that rabbit hole magically led her to this place called Wonderland. If you've ever read those books or, or might possibly seen any of the film versions, you know what I'm talking about. In The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy ends up in the magical land of Oz when a tornado lifts up her, hand, her house in Kansas and somehow deposits it in this other universe this other realm. And with a slightly more Christian flavor, C.S. Lewis's classic books, The Chronicles of Narnia, the children in those books find themselves into the magical land of Narnia through the back of an otherwise ordinary looking wardrobe. If you've ever read those books there, I think from memory the story goes that they're playing hide and seek and one of the young boys goes into the wardrobe to hide himself and, and pressing back behind the coats and the cloaks he just finds this space just keeps on going. Next thing you know, he's walking on snow and he's in another land. But you see this concept of another place that you can get to by a special opening or portal is repeated again and again throughout written fiction and even other forms of media because mankind has a fascination with other kingdoms. Even right now, the governments of this world are spending incredible, some might suggest ridiculous amounts of money trying to establish if there's life on other planets. They get excited when something that costs billions of dollars goes to Mars and finds a molecule or some tiny speck of evidence that could possibly maybe indicate that there was a carbon-based life form there. Because they want to know, is there more than just this life? Is there more than just the planet Earth? And if they would read the Word of God, they could save an awful lot of money. Keep their machines and their rockets on this planet and do something else with all that money. But you see, the Word of God is definitely not fiction, contrary to some people's opinions. But God's Word is true. God's Word does not change. God's Word is forever settled in heaven. And it is God's Word that tells us about Him, that reveals our need for Him, and tells us, how to get to Him. And so the idea of a point of access or a door that separates two realms or two choices is not new and we find it repeated even in the Scriptures. When Noah was instructed to build the ark, he was very clearly told you put one door in that thing. And that wooden door on that giant wooden boat, that floating zoo, was the only point of access from outside to inside the ark and when that door was closed and the scripture tells us that God closed that door whatever side of that door you found yourself on determined whether you were recorded in history as having existed pre-flood or post-flood or after the flood if you were on the outside of that door when the flood came you ceased to exist but those eight souls 
that went through that door were the only eight people on the earth at that time that were able to say they were before and after the flood. Because of that door. Amen. There are many examples we could give, but in the book of Exodus, which side of a blood-stained door you found yourself on decided whether or not your firstborn child lived or died. Amen. In Ezekiel, there was living, healing water that flowed from under the door of the house of the Lord. There is significance scripturally in the idea of a door or an entryway or an access point. When that door closed in Noah's Ark, the people on each side of that door never saw each other again. Didn't matter if they were family, didn't matter if they were friends, didn't matter if they were good people or bad people. However, that was measured when the door closed. The door closed. Amen. And in Matthew chapters 3, 4, and 10 that we read from, the message that John the Baptist and then Jesus and then his disciples had was one of preparation. They had a message about a kingdom. They spoke about this kingdom saying that it was at hand. What that means was it was nearby. It wasn't there yet, but it was close. And it was coming. And the message that they were preaching was one of preparation. And that preparation was repentance or turning around, turning their backs on the sinful ways of the world and turning themselves towards God and being ready for this kingdom when it should come. That was the message that they preached. And repentance is always, when you read the scripture, repentance or turning away from wickedness, turning away from sinfulness, turning away from a life where it's all about what we want and towards a life where it's about what God wants is always a part of approaching God. And when you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus, particularly in the Gospels, but also his disciples, spoke a lot about this kingdom that was nearby, that was close at hand, that was coming. The Gospel of Matthew seems to particularly hold many parables that they told to communicate the concepts and the principles of this kingdom, Matthew 13 holds quite a few where Jesus will say the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he will give a parable. It's, it's like a, a woman that hid some yeast or some leaven in, in, some, in some flour and some meal and what happened. It's, it's like a man that went out and sowed in the field. It's, it's all these examples. They were communicating ideas and concepts about this kingdom that was at hand. Jesus even taught them sometimes that the laws of their old kingdom their earthly kingdom were going to be modified, even changed in this new kingdom. Several times Jesus said to those that listened to him, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. One example was he said to them, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. You should not, can't have an immoral relationship outside of marriage. He said, but I say unto you that if a man looks upon a woman with lust in his heart, he's guilty of that sin. And Jesus was adjusting the things that were in their old kingdom in preparation for his new kingdom. In the Jewish natu nat natural and national mindset, they begin to wonder if this kingdom was one of might and power and, and armies where they would come and finally kick out the Romans who had occupied their land and reestablish Israel as the powerhouse that it had been in the days of King David. That was their natural thinking and some of the people that listen to Jesus even begin to think that maybe they could manipulate the situation and get themselves into prominent positions. John and his brother James, their mum, that's pretty, pretty lame that they had to get mum to do it for them, but, but 
their mother comes to Jesus and says, when you come into your kingdom, is it possible, Lord, that my two little boys, Jimmy and Johnny, that they could sit on your left hand, on your right hand? And Jesus basically says, you don't really understand what you're asking. And the reason was they didn't really understand what the kingdom was all about. They didn't really get what this kingdom was all about. But along the way, Jesus said some things that let us know that this kingdom was going to be very different to what they had in mind. If you go to John chapter 3, we'll read some scripture there. The Bible tells us that Jesus had a meeting late one night with a respected religious ruler named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. He was a man that was highly regarded. And so the meeting was done on the quiet because of his reputation. And whether he was just being polite or being politically correct, he acknowledged that God was with Jesus in some way. Because the things that Jesus did, the miraculous things, there was no other explanation for them except that God was involved somehow. And in John 3 and 1, it tells us this story. It says there was a man, the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi or teacher, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We've always got to remember that's the first time we read this expression. Nowadays, people use it in all different ways. But back then, this was its first time. And Nicodemus said unto him in verse 4, Can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Thinking in the natural. And in verse 5, Jesus breaks it down a little bit further and says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So to be able to enter this kingdom, which was still at hand, still wasn't really where it was going to be just yet, Nicodemus and you and I need to be born again or born of water and Spirit. That ought to tell us this is not an ordinary kingdom. This isn't some place you can find on Google Earth that you need a passport to get to. There's something that's, that's greater that's happening here. And a few chapters later in John chapter 10, if you'll turn there, I'm going to read some scriptures so that we know it's what the Word of God says. John 10 and 1, again, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them. The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. And then verse 6 tells us that Jesus spake this to them, but they didn't understand what he was saying. So again he speaks to them in verse 7. It says, Then said Jesus unto them again, Truly, truly, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. If we don't believe that that's the devil's purpose, look at the world you're living in. If anything worthwhile is not being taken away, and mankind is not being destroyed, then I don't know what is. Amen. And then he said in the second part of that verse, I am come that they might have life 
and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. So in this chapter, Jesus, the same person who told Nicodemus that if he wanted to enter the kingdom, he had to be born again of water and spirit, tells a parable about a sheepfold, a door, and a shepherd. And when they don't understand the Lord and he breaks it down for them, he declares to them that he is not only the good shepherd that he was speaking of, but he is also the door. And that if we will come through that door, that we can have life more abundantly. Not just survival, but life more abundantly. Now to emphasize that concept about him being the door, in the 14th chapter of John, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. No man comes to the Father but by me. Let's read another passage, Matthew 16. And we'll try to put some of this together. Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to abbreviate what I was going to read. Jesus asks his disciples who people say he is. They respond by giving him some of the opinions that are happening around about. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter answers and says, thou art the Christ, the anointed, the son of the living God. And in verse 17 of Matthew 16, Jesus tells Peter, you're blessed because you didn't work this out by yourself. You didn't sit down and study and look at all this stuff. He said, but my father has revealed this to you. He's given you this revelation. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, I say unto you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, not Peter, but upon that understanding that God just gave him, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I want you to pay attention to verse 19. And I will give unto thee or unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And it goes on and says, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this guy, this man, this disciple Peter, who was one of the disciples that was out preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This same Peter is told by the Lord that he's going to be given the keys to this kingdom that he's been preaching about. Amen. Amen. So to bring this together, and we've, we've put out a few different pieces. Let's see if we can put this puzzle together. To summarize what we've done so far, John the Baptist and Jesus and the disciples all preach the same message. You need to repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. You need to get ready. They all preach the same message. Then Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again of water, and of spirit if he wants to enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It's the same thing. Jesus also says that he is the door or that he is the access point to that kingdom. And then finally he says to Peter, and you get the keys. So that's, we've, how do we put all this together to make sense? Let's start with this question. How is it that Jesus is the door? How is Jesus the door? So to get from this kingdom, our natural kingdom, where you and I live in our natural sinful lives, where we are presently, to get to that kingdom, we need an access point. We need a door. We need a way to get in. 
Now, when Jesus was born, and I don't want to go too quickly here because I want us to really get a hold of this. When Jesus was born, the Bible, and there's a lot of scriptures we could use to support this, but let me just put this as briefly as I can. The Bible declares that God revealed himself in flesh. That the invisible spirit of God put on flesh is almost like a garment and revealed himself to mankind. In fact, the scripture describes Jesus as being the visible of the invisible God. He is the manifestation or the revelation of God. He robed himself in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was not sinful, but he took on him the likeness of sinful flesh and had a genuine human experience, just like you and I. Amen. It's an incredible thing that God would do that. It's mind-blowing to comprehend that God would reveal himself to us in the form of a man. It's, it's almost as if he, he stepped from his throne into where we are. He stepped that, that, that it wasn't that heaven was empty, but God chose to reveal himself in flesh and come from where he is to where we are. Now, he could just as easily step back. He could just as easily step back. But the problem is that we could not follow him. If that's all he did, and when I say all, I don't make, make that small, but if, if that's all he did was step into our realm and then step back, we couldn't follow him. As much as that is incredible and awesome, it doesn't change our status. Because we can't follow him, because every one of us, no matter what background you come from, no matter what your heritage or your ethnicity is, we all have the same problem. We all have sin. We've all broken God's law. We're all guilty of sin. It's like having a genetic condition that is passed from one generation to another. And some of us know people that, who, whose families have tendencies towards genetic conditions that you cannot get rid of. It's wired into your genes. Sin is exactly the same. In fact, it's worse. Because with many genetic things nowadays, doctors and specialists can treat some of those things. You can't medically treat sin. You can't go to the doctor and say, well, you know, you've had this problem for generation to generation, but we're going to put you on a course of antibiotics or steroids or whatever the treatment might be, and we'll reverse that process. You cannot do that with sin. All of us from every tribe and every nation are born with sin attached to us that we cannot remove. And because of that, if the Lord stepped out of his kingdom into ours and then chose to step back, we couldn't follow because when we step into that, our sin would kill us instantly. Because heaven, the realm in which God dwells, is holy and pure. And the Bible makes it very clear that sin can't enter there. So as much as it is incredible that he robed himself in flesh, if it stopped there, it stops. But we know that it doesn't stop there because the Bible lets us know that he was willing to die for us. That he was willing to redeem us, which means to pay a price to buy us back, to take our punishment. And so for the first time ever, when he shed his blood for us on the cross, was buried and rose again, we had the opportunity to take something that was stuck to us that was a part of who we were and be separated from it and have our sins washed away, forgiven, remitted, taken away forever, whatever word you want to use. 
through His death, burial, and resurrection. He made something possible that was previously impossible. Something that, yes, I mean, we, we could argue about whether or not it's truly genetic, but the facts are sinful natures are passed on from generation to generation. I got mine from my mom and dad. They got theirs from their parents and on and on and on. doesn't matter whether you like how tall you are, the color of your eyes, your build, all of the talents you do or do not have. A lot of those things are genetic. We see that. But sin, everybody got. There are things I didn't get from my dad. I wish I had my father's musical talent. I wish I had my dad's artistic talent with drawing and painting and that sort of thing. But I don't have those things. My sister got some of those. I wasn't asked for an opinion. But she got those and I didn't. But both of us got our sin from our parents. They didn't choose to pass it on. It's just in humanity. All of us have sin. But when Jesus paid the price, suddenly there was a way that we could be separated from that stain. That we could have that taken away that was previously impossible. That kingdom that John and Jesus and his disciples preached about, that it was at hand, that it was approaching, was now here. Because his death, his burial and his resurrection made it a two-way door. Not only could he come to us, but now through his sacrifice we can come to him. So that kingdom that was right there, you see, we couldn't get into that kingdom yet because the opening was not made available. But when he died and rose again, suddenly there is a way that we can come to him and we can become a part of that kingdom. Amen. So how do we go through that door? If he is the door, how do I walk through it? Come here for a sec, Moses. I won't hurt you, I promise. Jesus said he was the door. He was a man just like Moses. If I try to walk through Moses, brace yourself, bro. It's not going to go well. We're both probably going to, I'm probably going to fall over because I'm bigger, but he's younger and stronger than I am. But that, so obviously Jesus' physical body was not some strange doorway. Thanks, bro. We're not actually going to act it out. We'll, we'll take this, this soft road. So how do I go through that door? Jesus told Nicodemus that if he wanted to enter to go through, to come into the kingdom, he had to be born again of the water and of the Spirit. He told Peter, you're going to have the keys. You can't go through a door that's locked. It's got to be opened. Now what happened on the day of Pentecost? Let's go there, Acts chapter 2. We're going to try and bring this all together. On the day of Pentecost... A whole bunch of people were filled with the Holy Ghost of the Spirit of God for the first time. There's a great crowd gathered around and Peter stood up and he began to preach to them and through the things that he said to them, what he basically brought them to understand was that Jesus Christ had died for their sins and that because they were sinners, that's why he had to go to the cross. He let those people know, you've got that stain like everybody else. You've got that stain on your soul. And they, they, when they came to realize that their actions and their choices and their behaviors had caused them to be sinners, and that because of that sin, they could not enter where God wanted them to go. The door was closed. They said to Peter in verse 38, it says, When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Their conscience suddenly bothered them. A conscience is a good thing. I know most of us don't like having a conscience, but a conscience is a good thing. A conscience is how God speaks to you. Now, most of my childhood growing up, my conscience sounded like my mother. 
but your conscience is actually God dealing with you about the things you do that are right and wrong. And when they, when, when they, they were pricked in their hearts and said to Peter and the others that were with him, what do we need to do? How do we change this situation? We're, we're sinners. We're stained. We can't get it off. The door's closed at that point. But how do we change it? And Peter said this in verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, repent. That ring a bell from earlier. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptized just means immersed in water. In the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So what do we see in the response from Peter? How does all this fit together with the message of John the Baptist and Jesus and his disciples and the command given to Nicodemus? How do we bring all this together to make sense? Well, the first part that Peter said was he had to repent. That's the message that John, Jesus, and the disciples all preached. Repent, the kingdom's at hand. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your wickedness. Turn towards God. Secondly, Peter said you have to be baptized in Jesus' name. What did he tell Nicodemus? You've got to be born of the water. Then we will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost... What was the second part when he spoke to Nicodemus? And born of the Spirit. Amen. So all of these things come together. So how is Jesus the door? How do you and I go through that door? How do we put together the message from the apostles and John the Baptist, the message with Nicodemus, and the fact that, Je that Peter had the keys? Jesus died for us. When we repent, the Bible tells us that we are dying to our old sinful lives and our actions. In Romans 6, verses 2 and 8, it says, How shall we that are dead to sin? Not dead physically. We're still living, still breathing, but we are dead to sin. If we're dead to sin, should we live any longer therein? And the answer is no. Amen. Jesus was buried in the tomb. We are buried with him in baptism. Colossians 2 and 12 says, Buried with him in baptism. Amen. Acts 4 and 12 tells us that there is only one name whereby we must be saved. It doesn't say it's a, a choice of a very small group. It says there's only one name. There's no other name than the name of Jesus. So the question is, if we get baptized, if we are buried in any other name than the name of Jesus, how do we know who we were buried with? The scripture says we are buried with him in baptism. Now, if I'm not buried in his name, how can I be sure I was buried with him? Brother Marlon, that's why you got baptized in Jesus' name, to be buried with him. Amen. And Jesus rose from the dead. Even so, we have new life through his spirit. Romans 6 and 4 says, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ, or as the example of Christ being raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, in the same way, we walk in newness, or we have a new life. So the only way that we can enter through the door is to follow what he did, also bringing in what he told Nicodemus, and the keys that Peter gave us in Acts chapter 2. Amen. So it all fits together. The kingdom was at hand, and then when Jesus died and rose again, the kingdom became available. 
We now had the opportunity to be born again of water and spirit, to repent, to obey the keys that the Lord gave to Peter. It all fits together. The door, the keys, the being born again of water and spirit are all part of God's design. The scripture is not given to us to bring confusion, but it is given to us that it would all be woven together to say the same thing. And it does. Amen. It is time to be in the kingdom. It is time to be in the kingdom. Amen. Amen. And see, just like the door on the ark, this door, Jesus, in that form as our Redeemer, this door is only going to stay open for a season. It does not stay open forever, but for a period of time that only God knows the length of. The Bible makes it very clear that nobody knows when Jesus is coming back, not the day or the hour. So the moment anybody tells you they know exactly when Jesus is coming back, you can automatically say, you don't know what you're talking about in the nicest possible way. Amen. And also, just like the ark, when that door closes, those on either side of that door will never see each other again. It's finished. The door closes and it is closed. I want you to go to Ezra with me, if you would, in the Old Testament, the book of Ezra, the ninth chapter. The Old Testament, Israel was taken into captivity. Their wickedness had caused their relationship with God to be broken down. And the Lord allowed the Babylonians and the Assyrians to come and to, to conquer them and to take them into captivity. But then because of God's grace and His mercy, there was a time when the Lord wanted to bring His people back to Israel. And uh, when the Jews were in captivity, they were miraculously, really, by the hand of God, granted an opportunity to return to their homeland and to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. And Ezra, who was a scribe, who is uh, one of the figures that's instrumental in all of this process. In Ezra chapter 9 and verse 6, Ezra speaking, it says, And said, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head. Our sins are higher than we can even measure. And our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day, and for our iniquities have we, our kings, and our priests been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, and to a spoil, and to confusion of face or the confusing of their identity, as it is this day. Ezra is not making excuses for Israel's past, for their actions, but really Ezra is, is praying a prayer of repentance on behalf of his nation. He's saying, Lord, we acknowledge that we've sinned. We are guilty. Uh, our sins are, are, are past head height. They're so high we can't even keep a, a, a log of them, a tally. We're guilty. Our kings, our priests, we've done all the things that you've said that we did. Repentance is how you approach God. But then in verse 8, this, this is what it says. It says, And now, for a little space, grace has been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes, that he may open our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. 
grace had been shown to them for a little space or briefly for a season. They had an opportunity to get it right, to make it right with the Lord. We live in what is often called the age of grace, a time when the gospel message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is being preached in this world, and we can come to him by his grace and make it right with him. But just like Ezra said, it's a little space. In fact, when you look at the word space here in verse 8, you look at it in the Hebrew, it means the wink of an eye. It's also translated in the Old Testament as an instant or as a moment. It takes my mind to the New Testament where Paul wrote and he said, Behold, I show you a mystery that we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. There's going to be a trumpet that sounds and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Right now, there is a door. There is a little space of time that is open for mankind to cry out to the Lord. But just as it was with the ark, the door will close. Just as it was at the Passover and Exodus, they had to get inside the house and close the door. There is going to come a time when this opportunity, when that kingdom that John and Jesus and the disciples preached about, when our opportunity to come into that kingdom will cease. It's time to be in the kingdom. It's time to be in the kingdom. Amen. When I worked some years ago now, at uh, back then what was called the Burswood Entertainment Center, it's now the Crown, where the casino is and the hotel and all the restaurants. In case you're wondering, I wasn't dealing blackjack. I was being a pastry chef in the kitchen. They had an entertainment area. I, I, it may still be there. I know they were talking about pulling it down called the Dome. Some of you are familiar with that. This great big facility, it had a soft roof, almost like balloons. And the way that roof was kept up was through maintaining a certain amount of air pressure so that it would be a dome and not a gully. They, they kept that thing inflated. And so when we worked there, whenever we had to transport large amounts of food or equipment into that facility for different venues and things that were taking place, to come in at the ground level, at the kitchen level, there was an airlock. There was an airlock, and so what happened was you would, you would come, it was a really big door, much bigger than a normal door, and you, would, you had to press the button, and you could open that door, and then you went into a really, large, a, a really big area, and there was a door on the other side. But you could not open that door until that door was closed. That's how they maintained the air pressure. I'm not sure how they did it when people were coming in in the thousands, I don't know. But I do know that that was how we had to come in. We had to open that big door, and we could leave that door open as long as we wanted, and we could come in and out and go back and get another trolley or another box or a crate or something and bring it in and out as long as we wanted to with that door open. But if we were going to go the next step, that door had to be closed behind us, and then the other door was opened, and we could go through. But you see, if you were not in that transition point, when that first door was closed... You can only look through the glass from the outside. I had a glass window just in case there was an emergency. You can only look through as the other door opened and the people disappeared out of sight into the kitchens and where the areas where we had to work. The church, the kingdom of God right now, we are in his kingdom. We live in this earth in the natural kingdom, but if you are born again, if you've entered through the door, 
You're in the kingdom of God, but at the same time, where we are in the church, not the building, but the people, we are in a transitional area. Where as long as the door is open, people can come in, and if people want, they can go back out, as long as that door is open. But there is coming a day, just like there was in Noah's day, when God, not man, but God will close that door, and your ability to come in will be ceased. It doesn't matter how sincere you are or how much you meant to get there early, but whatever it was delayed you. When the door is closed, you will be on the outside. You won't be able to look in. There's no portal. There's no window. But you will be on the outside of the door. And as that door closes, let me show you something in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. Now, I'm not getting into prophecy this morning. And I know there are different opinions about this verse, but for people that view the book of Revelation as having a loosely chronological pattern, Revelation chapter 4, if you don't know much about the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is given visions and things by the Lord to show him about what will come. And he's told to write down the things that were, the things that are, and the things that are yet to come. And he writes in chapters 2 and 3 to churches that existed in his day, but were also symbolic of all different kinds of churches and possibly even church ages. That's a discussion for anybody that wants to have that later on, they can. But in, verse, in chapter 4 and verse 1, it says this, John speaking said, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking to me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and beheld a throne that was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Just like that airlock, when that door closes, John said, I saw a door open in the heavens, and immediately he was in the Spirit. And some would suggest... You can debate it, that's fine, but some would suggest that this verse is a passage of what will happen when the Scripture says that the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of, an, of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Amen. Why is it time to be in the kingdom? It's time to be in the kingdom because Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And that first door is going to be closed. And in that same moment of time, this transition that we're in in this life, where right now we go in and out however we like when that second door opens and that trumpet sounds, we are going to be changed in that moment, in that twinkling of an eye, and we are going to be with the Lord forever. Hallelujah. It is time to be in the kingdom. Stand with me if you would. Sister Stanker, if you could come to the piano, please. Hallelujah. I've covered a lot of territory this morning, I know. And some of it, you may or may not have got everything I said, which is not the Lord's fault, it's mine. But Jesus is coming back. And brother and sister Hogman, who are not strangers to us, are very dear friends of mine, have known since I was a teenager. Whenever we get together, we talk about things, things we remember, things that happen, things that are happening in the church. We just talk about what the Lord's doing and things that are going on in the kingdom of the Lord. And always... And we say, well, I think this might happen, and I think that might happen. And, you know, and nearly every single time we talk, Sister Hogman always finishes up with, Jesus is coming. 
She said, she always says something along the lines of, I don't know how it's going to be, but this thing I do know, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. That's why I'm in this kingdom. That's why I'm in the door. That's why I chose to walk through that doorway. That opening that he said there is a portal. There is an access point between a natural sinful kingdom and a heavenly kingdom. If you will come through him, if you'll be born again of water and spirit, if you'll repent of your sins, you can be in that place. That when that one door closes and we are taken to be with him for eternity and everything else is just distant memories. Let's lift our hands together this morning.